Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running, 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 running. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed, 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 Welcome to the Selected Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and clearly I'm taking this voiceover way too seriously. Well, all right, all right, all right. You have found it. This is the Selected Podcast. I am your host, Dan Taylor, and Nanu Nanu. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It is episode 13. This is lucky number 13 coming at you from a snowy, believe it or not, it is snowing in London. Snowy London. It is Tuesday, the 9th of February at 9, 11, and 15, 16, 17 seconds. I think this is the first time I've ever recorded at night. Our guest today, I uh, she, she listened to Boris last week, and she was so impressed by cocktails, she informed me before going on the air that she will be partaking in an Irish coffee in a narwhal mug. Now, if that doesn't give you any kind of indication of the level of nerd we're going to be talking to today... Let me introduce this nerd. She is an internationally recognized speaker, coach, and conference curator with her signature programs that creatively link science, technology, and business innovations with humanities, arts, and cultures. She's the co-founder of The Super Curious, a boutique media agency, and she's the executive editor and chief storyteller at Measure What Matters. She was the founding editor at TedMed, where she's produced talks that have generated tens of millions of views on TED.com. She was involved in Amazon.com's first product launch, Beyond Books. She did R&D at Walker Digital, the lab behind the first unicorn, Priceline.com. She led the Holacracy implementation at Tony Shea's downtown project, where she held the title of Magical Awesomeness Catalyst. She's also a violin player. She's got plenty of jokes about viola players. Ladies and gentlemen, the superstar nerd of the hour, Miss Lisa Shufro. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm so pleased to be here representing nerds everywhere. My God, I'm out of breath from the intro. <sighs> it is a lot of syllables. I agree. It, yeah, I, I might even put the emphasis on the wrong one. Who knows? Entirely possible. Holacracy. Did I get it right? Holacracy? Hol holacracy. It is a term derived from the term holon, created by Brian Robertson, who is arguably even more nerdy than me, and I think he would agree. That's that's not a not a slight or a surprise. Cressy. I'm going. It's probably in Greek origin. Democracy. A holon. Yes. So to create. To create a crassy, as in a democracy, right. uh, of holons, where each individual cell is reflective of the whole. That was the... Are you calling me a holon? I am calling you a holon, a big holon. Wow. Well, big ol' holon. Because we are all pixels, as Tony would say. Hey, let's keep it dirty here, okay? My pleasure. <laughs> What's going on? What's shaking? How are you? Long time no see. I know. It's nice to see your visage, as long as we are emphasizing the wrong syllables today. I think that should be the theme of the show. We should just try to mispronounce as many words as possible. Possible. Possible, as they say, in some other language. Now, where are you? Are you you're in New York. Brooklyn. Yo, in the BK. Snow there is... Wait, well, wait a minute. Are, are you like buried under 90,000 feet of snow? Only in the cinematic version of my life. Only? No. 
<laughs> How's everybody? Everybody, are you healthy? Is everybody fine? The family's good? Everybody good? Mama's good? I've been incredibly blessed that the people I love and care about the most so far have been safe and healthy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, myself, I was already kind of pandemic proof other than traveling on planes, which has stopped for everyone. But yes, I've been very right. blessed this this year. Good. I'm happy to hear that. When was the last time you traveled more than five miles away from where you live right now? You know, what's odd about that is that I was spending more time outside of New York than in it. I thought my dog was going to give me divorce papers pretty soon. And uh, for the last year, I mean, for the last eight years, I've been traveling quite a bit, not quite on the level as you, but um, still quite active. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a whole year of not leaving Brooklyn. I think I've been to Manhattan twice. Maybe three times, which is a whole in other the last world. year. Yeah, I was supposed to fly to uh, to Africa the day before uh, everything kind of shut down. At this point in time, I've been in London for over a year. Africa doesn't sound too bad at this point. I mean, here's what I'll say: is I think if there's one continent that understands that you have to be very diligent about public health measures in the face of infectious disease, hmm. that is a continent that understands that it doesn't always have the infrastructure to address it. But I think the public understanding of it is relatively advanced, certainly in comparison to some of the news we've seen in the U.S. Since you've been in Brooklyn for a year, you've been to Manhattan twice. What is your other? I wish I could say that I picked up the violin again, but um, that sadly has not happened. Uh, I think instead the thing has been plants. I know it's, you know, I'm trying to recapture my lost millennial youth that I never had, I guess, because I'm so not a millennial. you're growing marijuana, right? There are grow lights. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so you've become an amateur botanist. I'm sure the dog is loving this. The dog is, what is the dog's name? Roscoe P. Coltrane. I wasn't going to go down the boss hog route, but but I will if I need to. So I, you know, most people know I learned how to uh, tear my guitars apart, how to clean them, how to rewire them, put them all back together. Lisa learned how to grow up. Now, okay, plants. What 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 does that mean? I mean, what what is your most exotic plant? What well, do you have? I was traveling so often and also like I need, you know, the interaction of an animal to say I need to be walked, fed, watered, those kinds of things. So plants before this year signed up for a very hard life if they came into my home. And I think, you know, for the sake of good karma, I had really rejected the notion of having them. Mm-hmm. But since I'm home a lot now, I was like, well, give it a shot. And I'm pleased to say that in the last five months, only one has not survived. I overwatered it. It was a little too much love. A little too much love, Dan. That plant was clearly not long for this world anyway. Okay, I want to, uh, on a bit of a somber note, I'm going to like turn the lights down a little bit low here. You had the opportunity to work with Tony Shea. Yes. And, and and a lot of other prominent figures, a lot of big thinkers. I never got the chance to meet the guy. I know a lot of people who did, and, and anybody that I talk to or any tributes that I've seen, any Instagram posts, I have heard nothing but volumes about what an unbelievable human being he was. I think any guy who hands out the business title of Magical Awesomeness Catalyst is somebody I know I would have had one hell of a shoot with. You worked with him day in, day out. Tell me about your experience with Tony. I am not even sure where to begin other than to say that um, Tony was a profound influence on the life that I have today. And he made things possible 
just by believing that they could be possible. And he gave a lot of freedom and autonomy to pursue things that at first didn't make sense. And that was exactly the opportunity that helped me transition from corporate. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, admittedly, I walked away from what was ostensibly a dream job being the head of programming for Ted's largest spinoff to sure. pick up and move to Las Vegas. Uh, yeah. And uh, required that quality that Tony had to sense an opportunity play to the edge um, to make it happen. And I certainly never would have given myself the title of Magical Awesomeness Catalyst. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact that it was given to me by Tony is something that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, It was actually what he did in his life. And I'm trying to live up to it. And I'm grateful that he created that window for me and so many others. Was there ever any idea or project or avenue or road you wanted to go down that he said, mm, no, not buying it? Or was it just a, you know what, I, I believe in you, go for it? He was someone who not only had, I think, a very good instinct for what was a good opportunity, but he also was willing to let people make mistakes. And mm-hmm. so I think it was a very quick set of interactions between the two of us. Because uh, I think both of us were prone to taking risks uh, that were educated in a way. And what I fundamentally liked about Tony was that I would say something and he would immediately point out the missing elephant in the room. Even though it might be my area of expertise, such as conference curation, in six words or less, I mean, fewer syllables, back to that word, fewer <laughs> syllables than a haiku. And I would be like, how did I miss that? And I loved the fact that he would make me better. He would make me want to show up the next time, having thought about it more deeply, having it be clarified um, so sharply. So was there anything he said no to? I mean, ultimately, the downtown project took a strategic direction that caused me to leave Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are choices about leadership that uh, ultimately weren't a good fit for me. But my interactions with him were always of respect, um, always cherished the insights that he was able to generate um, with the kind of ease that I didn't get to experience much outside of that. And that's just saying, you know, I work, I get, I get the rare pleasure to work with a lot of brilliant minds. They let me walk around in their brain, which is to me the coolest job title on earth. Um, but uh, Tony's effect on me was profound. Thinking about this today, thinking about Tony and, and you know, doing some more, I mean, I knew, but doing even some more research about the man. You've worked with a lot of these people. Is there a common thread that runs throughout? I love that question. There is something that happens. I can, at this point, listen to someone and after a short time, I can recognize almost meta patterns Uh, Mm -hmm. of the speakers that I think have been the most transformational um, versus on the most shallow and performative. Um, And what would I say are some of those common glimpses? One is they tend to be wholly self-organized around their central passion point. Even if they can't articulate it, everything in their life 
centers around a burning question, a burning quest. Um, and even if they're doing disparate projects, what I find underneath is that there is a, a burning question underneath that underlies a lot of their interactions, personal or professional. So um, finding that distilled purpose mm. is, I think, often an indicator to me uh, how they're organizing around that purpose is something I see very frequently among the most transformative thinkers and doers. The other thing I think I see a lot of is an ability to switch from micro to macro uh, with fluidity and ease, the ability to see both at the same time, but articulate one without the expense of the other. I worked with Richard Branson one, tw actually twice. Once, though, he was being literally chauffeured around from one room to another room, and I was following him at an event he was speaking at. And the minute he walked in the room, the light bulb went on, and he was, "Hey, hi, how are you? How it's pleased to see you." La la la, handshake, 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 and did the did the schmoozing. And then the the literally the minute the man walked out the door, boom, the curtain went down. Didn't say a word. Head was down, hands in the pockets down the corridor, in the lift, didn't say a word, walked in the room, turned it on, showtime. I have never seen anyone like that before. I mean, and, you know, and I could tell just standing in the lift with the guy going up and down two floors. I'm sitting there thinking, there's like $2 billion worth of a deal going on in this guy's head right now. Like he is generating mm -hmm. life-changing things in his head. You know me, I'm, I'm always willing to butt in and, and with a joke and make somebody laugh or smile. This was one of the very few people in my life where I thought, you know what? I, no, I am not going to interrupt this guy because there is a, like I could see the smoke. There's a commuting. There was yeah. something going on. And it's almost like they can see it. Almost like it's a, a planet that they can zoom in and out of. Mm. And so it's not a switch. It's a, this ability to go three-dimensional in their thinking that I find super fascinating. So, for example, I remember talking to a theoretical physicist who uh, – I work a lot with scientists in particular and always love the challenge of helping them shed the jargon – and speak to the essence of why their research is so interesting or critical or what the big challenges are. And I remember the, getting this very dense set of papers, having these phone calls where it sounded like English, but it didn't feel like it and because <laughs> there was so much jargon. Right. And then finally slowly realizing that what this guy's research was, gentleman's research was, was to calculate the probability of what space-time looks like at quantum level. And so the thing about quantum space-time is it's different at every possible quant, a different crumpled shape. And to describe the math and the probability of that math at quantum – and you could see when he looked at the world that all he saw was crumpled up quantum space-time probable molecules. And I thought, what a fascinating way to look at the world. That's like the best LSD trip I've ever had. That's kind of my job. <laughs> when I say walk around in people's brains, it's not always obvious. It was a pretty spectacular moment because I, I think like you, I'm fundamentally fascinated by any thought that didn't originate in my own head. So those moments are everything. This makes John Nash look like, you know, a, a neophyte. I, I it was absolutely that kind of moment where I was like, whoa, that's what you do? I mean, I guess space-time has to take some shape. 
my mind is exploding right now. How do you do that? How do you look at somebody's scientific research paper about quantum space? You lost me after that. I don't really understand it. How do you get them from Sheldon Cooper to <laughs> Dan Taylor? Walk me through this process. How does this happen? I don't understand. I'm just completely unafraid to ask questions. I was that kid who was like, why, 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 what does that mean? Is it like this? I mean, so the, you know, when I first started curating for TED Med, it was incredibly scary because I was a music major. I didn't know anything about health and medicine, right? What was this violinist with a background in business and marketing doing talking to Nobel prize winners? And it was a very simple calculation, which was I can either embarrass myself in front of a single Nobel laureate and ask until I understand what they're saying, or I can put the wrong person on the stage and embarrass myself in front of 2,500 prestigious doctors and theoretical physicists and researchers who came, you know, who spent $5,000 to watch my program. So mm -hmm. the calculation was pretty obvious. I'm just going to patiently ask more and more questions. And I think over time, what happened was that the more people I spoke to, the more I began to recognize those meta patterns. And mm -hmm. so the conversations eventually became, I hope, uh, rewarding for both parties, because I wasn't right. just asking them to explain their own science. But I was able to say that sounds very much like something in another uh -huh. field that wasn't part okay. of their. And so that collectively reframing or coming to a collective understanding mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what their science was, what its significance was, learning to shed themselves of the jargon in order mm. to do a Richard Feynman, right? Here's yeah. the essence. Wow. Here's the okay. real essence that drives everything became a rewarding process for um, for the speaker as well as the audience. And I was essentially the stand-in for the audience. Well, if I may, I think another job title you might want to add to your resume is jargon stripper. <laughs> I think that, that could work. I was just, I was like, is that a wrestling name or is that, yeah, like if I was working, you know, at the Eager Beaver? If I was still living in Las Vegas, would I want to go with jargon stripper? I don't know, you know. I'll tell you this. One of the speakers that I first work with uh, who was amazing um, – at the end of our collaboration together said, do you know what your epitaph is going to say? And I was like, uh, no. And he goes, and she was loved by nerds. And she was loved by nerds. I want to come back to the, the high level, big thinking people, because I was thinking about Tony today. And I was mm. thinking, you know, like, I don't want to discuss it, because we all know what happened. But I was I was thinking about it today, and and as luck would have it, one of my most favorite songs of all time comes up on Spotify. It, it's, it's almost as if Spotify knows how I'm thinking that day. That is kind of weird. They're all but one of my to you. they are all listening. One of my most favorite songs is by a band called Rush. Speaking of being a nerd, and the song is called Limelight. And one of the lines from this, penned by the drummer Neil Peart, is. Living in a fisheye lens, caught in the camera eye, I have no heart to lie, I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. So in your experience, what are some of the challenges that these big thinkers face? So a big thinker has different stages of success. There's sort of a, a life cycle, you know, caterpillar to butterfly style. And I'd say the early big thinker 
suffers from a form of charlatan syndrome. They are often using language that hasn't made it into common frameworks of thinking. That's a very nerdy way of saying it's like trying to talk about the world being round when the majority of people around you believe it's flat. And it can take some time, particularly in emerging fields of science um, or technologies mm -hmm. that are fueled by deep tech and, and basic research. You mean the earth isn't flat? I am so sorry to burst your bubble. Oh, no. But Santa Claus is real. No. Um, so Next you're going to tell me Santa Claus isn't real. Oh, God. I, I tried. I couldn't, I couldn't do that to you. Um, I'll leave you in your delusion. So I think early on, you know, they're going against the grain. They don't have the language. It's difficult for them to understand whether the rest of the world doesn't understand them and they should just run back into the forest and, you know, hoard the insights that they have or if they should continue to stay out in the world and champion this thing that they're going to. So eventually, you know, they may get some traction. Mm -hmm. And they still are questioning, is that real? They're still questioning, am I doing all the right things? Or, you know, how much of this is performative and how much of this is genuinely? And then they get into another phase, if they continue to succeed, where there's like too much to do to maintain the notoriety on top of the work. And this is a particularly interesting point with because my, my special love in curating speakers is not just the big names and the fascinating big thinkers that we know, but I really love the, the sort of underdog dark horses, you know, hidden gems um, who have th that quality of transformational thinking that I describe, but haven't been discovered yet or haven't made a point to make public recognition their thing. To me, that's a very important inflection point. For these leaders, because that's when I think the social circle tends to flip over. And the people who have believed in you all along, but maybe don't have the skills to navigate the pressures of notoriety, whatever they come in the form of, that can be academic, it can be social media, it can be press or revenue, whatever. But the, the point at which the court of support changes, I think, is a very vulnerable time for the big thinkers. Court of support. I like that. Now, from what you've told me, do you just have incredible instinct or is this a, a formula you've developed over time? I mean, you, you, you know, you're telling me, oh, you, uh, you like the dark horse, da, 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 da. I could probably watch 10 speakers on stage and not tell you which one is going to be the next like mega success or, or you know, the one the New York Times is going to love their book. How, how do you like it? Because if this is the case, I want to go to the horse race track with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll answer that on a personal level and on a geeky neuroscience level. How about that? So which one do you want first? Yes. <laughs> The personal level is that, uh, like you, I'm a trained musician, and there is a lot of nonverbal cues that you and I are able to, trained to hear. And so we're able to hear differences in intensity, in voice, and there's a lot of information that a speaker or anyone that you're speaking to is giving to you without the 
actual words. And there is something about my musical training that allows me to hear the phrasing underneath that tells me this is important. This is something that scares them a little. And that's usually where the talk really is. I'm wondering what I've just been saying for the past 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the second and the second personal development is that um, one of the reasons I ended up as the curator of TED Med was I had completed four years uh, studying neuroplasticity and its effect on movement. So I know how our brains are wired to learn. Wait, wait, wait. I went to music... I went to music school too. I didn't study neuroplasticity. What are you a double major? Were you a double major? I was not. I could barely finish the major I had. Right? D for degree, baby. That was my program. <laughs> but, but where but where did you study neuroplasticity? It was later on. So I I became yeah, so after I graduated and I was actually working and um, I became very interested in how we move as it turns out you know, movement is the primary language of any nervous system. Anybody with a brain moves. Any creature with a brain moves. And if you understand how our brains wire for movement, there's a lot of hacking you can do. If you understand that you have a tendency to cartwheel to the right versus the left. I'm more concerned about my golf swing. <laughs> but there's a reason why you lean on one leg versus the other. There you go. Yes. And that, okay. Right? And you might feel like you're not a success if these subtle ways that you position your body prevent you from having the most efficient golf swing. And so it can be that the more you learn how to align yourself, if you can trust uh, standing on your back leg with complete comfort because everything in your body is aligned – then you will experience yourself as being better at golf and be more inclined to pursue it. It's a form of learning. We tend to pursue what we enjoy learning. So you have a good experience learning, you're going to do more of it. And you can even stop avoiding things that scare you if you can distinguish what's truly painful slash uncomfortable from what's unfamiliar. This is something that the brain is wired uh. to understand, but we make a lot of categorical or we conflate these things a lot. So sure. because of my musical background and I can hear a lot of data, including what's uncomfortable and what's unfamiliar, mm. because I can understand how we learn, I think it gives me an advantage. Um, now, when you say go to the horse race, you know, I, I'm terrible at horses, but um, I'm pretty good at UFC fighters. Um, but <laughs> okay. You know what? Scratch the horses. We're going to the UFC fight. Okay? That's true. Because I don't understand how you're going to get information. I mean, if you're getting information out of horses, well, we should talk because there's a whole other career I could I could find for you here. But okay. But with respect to to finding, finding how do you find a good speaker? You know, I'll, I'll take the neuroscientist, the geeky answer. David Eagleman, a neuroscientist, uh, wrote this wonderful book called Incognito about the unconscious brain. And he tells this story that I've been very influenced by about uh, Japanese chicken sorters who chickens go by on it. I mean, kid you not. It's a wonderful book. Ladies and gentlemen, Japanese chicken sorters. Yes, Lisa, back to you. So basically, in Japan, there's a prefect that has a higher rate of accurately sorting out male chicks from female chicks. Female chicks go on to lay eggs. <laughs> male chicks go on to become chicken nuggets. Ooh. More or less. So <laughs> right. they're going by on a conveyor belt, right? And how do you sort one from the other? Because from the 
from the outside, they kind of look the same at that age. So there's a prefix that has like a 97% accuracy rate. And this neuroscientist wanted to go and understand how did they get the rate so high. And what happens is you have a junior chicken, chicken sorter and a senior chicken sorter. And every time the junior chicken sorter picks up the wrong sex, a male, the senior one just like whaps them on the head or gives them negative reinforcement. And eventually there's no explanation because they're going by too fast. And eventually the junior chicken sorter figures it out. There's a whole lot of data, right? That the unconscious brain is processing and accumulating and synthesizing in order to come up with a realization. So I like to say that I've, I've watched a lot of chickens in the form of speaker ideas. I'm not sure this should go in the podcast, Dan. Now, I want you to take a sip of your Irish coffee. Irish coffee? Irish coffee. Yeah. yeah. Sip of the coffee. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm there. Narwhal and when me. You're, and when you're done with that, I want you to say senior chicken sorter, junior chicken sorter, senior chicken sorter, junior chicken sorter, but five times faster. Go. Junior chicken sorter, senior chicken sorter, junior chicken sorter. Senior chicken sorter, junior chicken sorter, senior chicken sorter, junior chicken sorter. Opera degree, baby, right there. This concludes the Japanese chicken sorter segment of the show, which which leads me into another fun Japanese-esque type game show thing. Lisa, it's time for the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Always. Good. Vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore? Depends on the day. What's the best and worst part of your job? The best part is being able to walk around in other people's brains for the sake of enriching other people's brains. When I became an independent conference curator, most people start their own conferences, but I decided rather than make one conference good, I wanted to help as many conferences at least not suck and hopefully be great. Uh, and so I became freelance, and that was a very weird thing to do eight years ago or whenever it was that I started and left Las Vegas. But... Um, since then, it turns out there are a lot of conferences that would like to do better. And I think I've gotten to work in over two dozen countries. Iceland, Brazil, or Japan? Well, Iceland was the best trip, but Japan was the coolest place. And Brazil was the weirdest thing ever. What's your spirit animal and why? It's probably a black hole. <laughs> they power the whole cosmos. Patrick Swayze, ghost or dirty dancing? Dirty Dancing. Who is your dream client and or event to work with? Damon Lindelof. What is the airport code of your hometown, Sioux City, Iowa? How did you look that up? How did you know to ask me that? S-U-X, I kid you not. And this has been the lightning round, ladies and gentlemen. Folks, we're going to go refill our drinks. I suggest you do the same. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Studies have shown that direct earball advertising is three halves more effective than either video or print. So whether it's out on a run with RAF or falling asleep with Phillies, your highly targeted message could be right here. Talk to me at dan at selected.sesamers.com. And we are back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just joining us, which I know you aren't, I'm talking to event curator, jargon stripper, and bad viola joke deliverer, Lisa Shufro. Previously, we, we talked about 
big thinkers and um, going on an acid trip and how Japanese select chickens. In the third half of our show, let's talk about the state of events because my boss, Ben, uh, we were having a chat the other day and, and we were talking about the podcast and he said, you know, I, I, I love all your guests, but, um, you know, we, we kind of do this whole thing related to events and uh, you haven't had an event organizer on yet. And I thought, holy shit, he's right. I haven't talked to a single event organizer. And then I was going through, of course, my client list. And I was like, okay, yeah, well, they, you know, they, they, do, they do the event organizer. And, and I thought, you know what? I would imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine the vast majority of people that listen to this podcast, all three of them, uh, they do work in the startup industry. And so, you know, they, they know all these event organizers. They've been to these events. And I thought, wait a minute, hang on. Event organizer. Whoa, I know somebody who organizes events that isn't in the startup world. So let's, you know, provide a little bit of value here. What, and, and you know what? I, I think I might have done you a great disservice. You are not an event organizer. I am not. You are not. You are a curator of events. Yes. What's the difference? Yes. Well, I think what it is, it, I, I can never decide if I'm going to go like basic or nerdy. Um, so a curator, basically what it is, is that I put my main focus on the program, the stage program itself. It's done it's designed in a way that integrates with say the party elements or the networking elements um, but my main focus is really on what is the purpose of the stage program and the content and how that drives the entire conference experience and I do specialize in conferences uh, mostly ones that are discovery and innovation oriented you've obviously curated a ton of events which means you must have attended a ton of events what are your three favorite events ever that you were an attendee at? Ooh, favorite. It's so hard to choose. Well, I, I think my first exposure to what I would say the kind of conference that I do now, that I design now, was actually the first TED Med I ever attended in 2009. Most people don't know this, but TED's uh, TED actually used to be TED Med. Uh, every five years, the focus of TED would be medical, you know, high tech and medical biotech discovery and, and wonders of science. Um, and eventually, Richard Saul Worman, the founder of TED, sold TED to Chris Anderson and kept the license to TED Med and launched TED Med along with uh, a wonderful, uh, I guess I would call him sort of my mentor in curation, Mark Hodosh and, and Jay Walker. Mm hmm. So the first time I went to a TED Med, it started with me getting on the plane, literally sitting next to David Blaine, who was about to give his first public talk. And wait, wait, wait. the next you thing mean, I knew- You mean the David Blaine? The David Blaine. He was the first speaker I ever got to coach, actually. Did he make um, the plane disappear? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he is he is uh, not scared of sharks, but he was terribly scared of public speaking. I was sitting on the plane. He was watching these videos of himself training to hold his breath underwater for 18 minutes or more at a time. He was training himself to stay calm under pressure like no cage and sharks around you. So no fear there. I think one of the things that we bonded over was that both of us as performers had never really been seen without his, for in his case, the magic, the cards mostly, or me without a violin. And so there is something, you know, Ted was designed to be vulnerable, to make the speaker vulnerable and reveal something in the moment that was sort of off, off road. 
And so for David Blaine, that moment was very poignant. Um, So Ted Med, that experience of content-driven luminaries on the stage, but an atmosphere where you really were uh, treating each other as equals in the audience. Uh, Ted Med and some spinoffs of Ted Med that Richard Solwerman also helped seed were incredibly influential and magical for me. Um, they put help me understand, you know, what is the difference between someone who really thinks at the biggest level um, versus the, you know, everyday life. It was kind of a Cinderella experience, except that you came away wanting to be Cinderella all the time. I would say on the opposite end of that is the conferences that you know we met at Flow Journeys, which is now Voyagers.io, um, where there was no planned content. The people were the content. The entire experience was designed, you know, like you and I met because we were in this gigantic SUV climbing over lava fields in Iceland for eight hours. I think it was J.S. Bach that brought us together. There was that moment. There was a conversation about a a, a partita or a suite or something. And this guy with a bunch of cameras and a mohawk turned around and went, well, you know, the suite in G really gets all the cred. But do you know the one in C, number six, the one that never... Yeah, that that was the beginning of our our friendship was uh, Lava Fields. Lava Fields in an SUV. J.S. Bach. And okay, so that's number two. What what was the th- what is your third favorite event then? I love that you're asking events rather than conferences because I think the the third most influential kind of series of events are not in the conference space at all. They tend to be theatrical and and they're ones where the divide between audience and presenter is very very thin. So Delagorda was mm-hmm. a huge influence on how I think about programming and how I think about conference design. The Alexander McQueen exhibit at the VNA, huge influence. Um, or I, I, I collaborate with the house ballroom community um, that began here in New York and going to a ball uh, um, there. The blend between the performer, the presenter, and the audience is so thin, it's exhilarating. For those that are unaware, please tell us about the house lives matter. My collaboration is with the House Ball community, and in particular, a phenomenal organizer, theologian, uh, historian, inspirational speaker named Michael Robertson. Um, but for the past several years, we've been collaborating on a number of live events that mm-hmm. are designed to introduce the House Ball community yep. to outsiders, but in their own words, because the most famous depictions of the House Ball community tend to be people who are not of the community. So Paris is burning, Pose, mm. um, don't always uh, have the community represented in their own words. Cool. See, I love being wrong about things because I actually end up learning something with the whole explanation. So uh, you know what? I'm proud to be wrong. My teacher liked to say experience is what you get right after you need it. Hindsight is always 20. Is it? What? <laughs> what is the... What is the your what is the product is probably not the right word. What is what is your what is the thing you're most proud of producing? There we go. Got it. Yes. <laughs> oh, whatever I'm working on is the thing I'm most proud of. Okay, so here's here's how I'll answer that question. I'm going to modify slightly, um, which is that you know I've been really lucky to apprentice with just master conveners, founders, creators, board members of TED, TED Med, and their spinoffs, and my most common 
kind of program that I'll do is multi-day conferences with, you know, 50 to 70 speakers on the main stage. And so for me, it's not always about the whole program, um, but it's about those moments that emerge that would never have happened unless I designed the space for them to emerge. So I could talk easily about like moments where I was like, nailed it. So the kind of moments that I'm most proud of um, might be like at the Life is Beautiful Festival where, you know, Kanye's on the lineup, the Foo Fighters are on the lineup, uh, but they decided that they wanted to include a speaker series that was TED-like or TED-inspired. The theme of Life is Beautiful is resilience, resilience in the face of hard times. And so uh, I curated this lineup of speakers who were nerds, but cool nerds, accessible nerds. And they included uh, someone that uh, you had a story about just a couple of weeks ago, Andy Grignan, mm-hmm. Mr. Oh, Fuckchop fuck himself. Yes, Fuckchop. Fuckchop fuck came and talked about you know education, and he was arguing with the uh, managing director of Teal uh, Capital, who went on. It was one of his first public talks uh and he, you know, went on to coin the term intellectual dark web, now has a huge podcast, you know, all these, he was early in his career, and they were kind of bouncing off each other about what does it mean to have a good education in this day and age. And I paired them with the creator of the Dothraki language on Game of Thrones, David Peterson. And so the three of them got on stage in the middle of downtown Las Vegas. It's a very improbable location to have an intellectual conversation. And these three guys... The, the room is packed, partly because everyone's like, Game of Thrones? What? Right? And they're talking about what it takes to create a language, to create an iPhone, to succeed, you know, in alternative ways. And somebody, he's drunk out of his mind, and the audience goes, I never thought about how much work it takes to do that stuff. He was mystified. <laughs> like, that that's a winning moment. Or another one, like, um, at TED Med, we had the Surgeon General. Uh, of the United States uh, at the time, Regina Benjamin and Z Dog MD, who is a primary care physician who was Tony's head of healthcare for the downtown project. And I invited Richard Simmons. And everyone was laughing at me and saying, You can't have Richard Simmons. I was like, Why not? He's an icon. This is 19, yeah. or this is 2000, 2013. And they were like, You can't do it at a serious event, you know, like, like Ted Med. And I called the Surgeon General and I said, what do you think about Richard Simmons? And she says, you know what? I couldn't get my grandmother to do any exercise. But when she would see Richard Simmons, she would grab the soup cans and start doing her exercise along with Richard Simmons. So we put them all three up on the stage together. And then Richard Simmons called the men up and he called the women up. You can just see in the photographs that there's something wonderful about being viscerally connected. These high-minded, super high-performer you know, experts in their fields are remembering what it's like to be a patient, to love movement, these visceral moments of programming where you tie the intellect to real life are moments where I know I've made a lasting impression and couldn't happen, uh, you know, unless someone thought to put them together where what they create together is greater than what they could do individually. From what I've heard for the past bit one of the keys to create curating creating and curating a great event a great conference a great program is you're breaking down the barrier between the audience and those on stage 
Walk me through your approach. Let, let's say, Lisa, I've got a 20, <laughs> 20, I've got a $20 budget. I've got a $20 million budget. Wouldn't that be the dream? And I say to you, uh, the topic is nerdiness. Like, where do you start? I mean, do you do you select the speakers? Do they, uh, you know, your clients? Do they do they have a you know set list of speakers? Like, talk me through the whole process. I start with who the community is. That's super easy. It's always about who the community is. It's not always the the same as the target audience. The target audience can be very different than who the community is. So when someone comes to me with, I'd like to start a new conference, or I'd like you to refresh my conference, or I'd like you to advise us on the design of our conference, the first question is always for me, who do you imagine the community being in three to five years? Why do they need to gather what would be meaningful to them? Not useful, meaningful. And so I always think of the audience first. I think of the presenters second and the organizers last. And that's, you know, that that's the blueprint that was given to me through TED. And I think it works. What is your definition of community? What is a community? A community is a group of beings who share a set of values or beliefs that they're willing to mobilize on. It can be very simple rituals such as we tell the same stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The key word here is that they're willing to mobilize on. It can't just be a bunch of passive participants. That's identity. So a shared commitment to yes or a shared commitment to something or at least one thing, shared set of values, shared set of rituals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there must be interactivity or a willingness to take that into action. Now, in a normal world, which we <laughs> lost about a year ago, uh, this would... Was that normal? Touche. In the world previously known as, um, a community would normally involve physical interaction, right? I mean, you, you gen- nine times out of ten, you'd want to be, you know, if it's a ritual or an activity, blah, 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 you usually have a bunch of beings in the same place. Now that, you know, we're not allowed to walk out our front door without a hazmat suit on, much less interact with uh, any other beings, how does community, how do you see community today? Well, communities exist, but I think the rituals have to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where you're seeing, I think, innovation is more in the entertainment space than you are in the conference space. I think the conference space has and, and the event space that's more formal um, has tried to replicate what they were doing live online, which is a just a recipe for failure in the same sense that, you know, when you have all this beautiful technology called the interwebs and you take a magazine and you turn it into a PDF instead of taking advantage of the opportunities and experiences that technology can give you, uh, that's a failure. That's a failure of imagination. And so people who are organizing events and conferences now that are simply trying to replicate it online are forgetting, to your beautiful point, we are bodies in space. And when we're all acting like we're Max Headroom, like losing the nonverbal communication, I often coach my speakers that your talk does not start when you open your mouth, when you're standing on the red dot or in front of the mic or whatever it is. Your talk begins the instant the audience can see you. Yep. 
walking up to the stage. You are communicating right there. And it's just when do you begin to use words along with that action? And so my critique of of how community is functioning in the in the event space today is if you can tune in later to watch it, something's missing. It should be a different experience to watch it later than it is to be there live. And so if you're not considering how your body is having an impact on someone on the other side of the screen, if you're not considering how their body is in space as they're listening to you, you are missing out on such a rich opportunity to build community rather than transmit content over Zoom. Missed opportunity. Did that answer your question? Yes, that very much answered my question. And literally what just ran through my head was, so blah, 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 was taped before a live studio audience. You used to hear that for, for sitcoms, and there was a reason why a live studio audience was there. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, because the actors, they act differently. And even though, you know, sometimes there might be a, and cut, you know, somebody might really blow a scene, but there was that, you know, when the actors go out on stage, it's not just a, okay, there's like the film crew, the sound guy, and everybody here, and if we fuck up, who cares, blah, 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 blah. It was a, uh, there's a 50, 60, 70, 80 people sitting out there. We got to go put on a show. And honestly, I love, 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 love that analogy of taking a magazine uh, and converting it to a PDF and sticking it online because we we all remember those. Well, we haven't progressed that much further, you know. We ha- it, the the whole form factor of the book is uh, very old. Yeah. It's kind of morphing, but to replace it, like for instance, why are magazine articles done? Like because the news continues. Mm-hmm. Why don't the technology lets us continually update them? And you see that happening, like in music, right? Um, was it Chance the Rapper who let you download his album sort of while it was being made until it, until it hit the final cut? That's a good use of technology. Conferences need to follow that kind of thinking, um, particularly in this transition period until we go back to a hybrid model. Let's see, folks. That's how hip she is. Chance the Rapper. Who? What? I'm, I'm, now I'm going to, you know, when, we're, when, we get, when we get done here, I'm going to go look that up because I didn't know about that. And that sounds really cool. Is there anybody killing it right now? Is there anybody doing this? Let me reframe that a little bit, which is there needs to be a reason why you want to watch it live. And if you can tune in later and it doesn't matter, that's a a miss. I believe that what happens later is a different experience and you should design for that. I want the ability to clubhouse and podcast at the same time. Because that way, that way I could have interactive, we we could be, I wouldn't be the only one asking the questions here. I like that where you're going there is what does it mean to be interactive? You know, I think in the case of a podcast like this, it's appropriate. There's something so intimate. Most people are listening to a podcast, you know, in their, in their earbuds or something in their earballs, right? It's about keeping each other company, right? I'm in your ears. You and I are, uh, are keeping each other company. That's a very different environment than um, being in a conference or at a concert or at an event where the point is to be communing with other individuals at once. So I the 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 experience that you are describing is exciting, but it doesn't negate a podcast 
and it doesn't negate uh, the the other forms of conference that could be happening with technology. How has your past year changed? Well, there's the, always the initial panic of how do we go virtual? And I'm a little sad to say that some of the clients that I was really urging to figure out what the online conference design should be like. We're really scrambling to do the magazine PDF format because that's all they could do to translate. Um, and my hope is that now that people are more used to this, that there will be some innovation around what the simultaneously live and simulcast experience might be like. So I like to liken it to the experience of going to watch the Super Bowl live and to watch it at home are two great experiences. They're different experiences, and that's okay. So what is the equivalent of that? I might prefer the experience I get at home versus live. I might prefer the one I get live. But they're two high-quality experiences. And what I hope doesn't happen when 2022 is when I think uh, the conference world will kind of get back on its feet or the event world will kind of fully get back on its feet. What I hope happens is, is it not just back to the usual conference with a simulcast. Sure. To answer your question, I'm, I'm looking more at 2022. I think 2021, first of all, when we do open up, there's going to be this glut of events um, predominantly. And I think it's going to be overload. Um, and I like to work a year or two in advance anyway on the conferences that I do. Mm -hmm. So I'm really squarely looking at 2022 right now. You can't tell me what any of those are, can you? I am under NDA. I'm sorry. But I'm excited about them. They're my favorites. Can you tell me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> am I going to see you in Europe? Why not? Yes. Okay. So one of them is in Europe. Good. All right. Good. Well, Europeans, we can look forward to the magic of Lisa Shufro in 2022. Lisa. We are almost out of time. We've been talking on and on and on and on and on here. Before we go, just a few more. I seriously want to know, what's the one question you had always hoped someone would ask you, but they never have? You said you hoped I'd sing. Well, there you have it. I don't, it's just such a strange question for me because... You're the one who always asks the questions. My Yeah, I, I view my work as the most powerful thing that we can give another being is the ability to reflect them accurately so that they can do what it is that they want to do. And so to be the mirror is how I view my profession, uh, how I view a lot of the work that I do. So what question would I want you to ask me that's never been asked? Because a lot of people ask me a lot of questions, too. If I had a boat, what would I name it? Lisa, if you had a boat, what would you name it? The Inconceivable. That's inconceivable. I do not think you know what that means. You keep using that word. I am Francisco Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare, Prepare to, to die. die. What are you most looking forward to? Hugs. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Everything you need is actually in front of you if you know how to look for it. Damn. Lisa... We are out of time. Tell the old folks where we can find you on the emails. Tell the kids where they can find you on the social meds. And most importantly, tell me where I can find you on, let's change it up, Clubhouse. Email is lisa at thesupercurious.com. Social media is lshufro, as in just the initial, 
not Spanish El Goya. Uh, El Shufro, S-H-U-F-R-O. And Clubhouse is probably the same thing. If you find a Shufro, they're related to me anyway, so. So I'll be searching for Senora El Shufro on Clubhouse. And ladies and gentlemen, that is it. This has been the Selected Podcast. I am your host, Dan Taylor, and I am out of here.